Good morning. All right. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Always a blessing to gather together as a body of Christ to worship the Lord and to spend time in his word. Looking forward to all that the Lord has for us. Today, we will be continuing our march through the Gospel of Luke. You know, for much of the, much of the, last, of the last several months, in fact, uh, we've been covering a portion of Luke that was distinct to Luke's Gospel. Uh, from um, late chapter 9 all the way uh, through to the opening of chapter 18, we've covered material that's primarily only found in Luke's account uh, of Jesus' ministry in the region of Perea. Uh, but that changes, though, from here on out. Uh, much of what we cover through the rest of Luke's gospel is also recorded in the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark, which means we will cover a lot of a lot more topics and teachings and events that we are very familiar with, uh, accounts that are recorded in, in multiple gospel accounts, not just the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in John's gospel as we get closer and closer to Jesus's final week there in Jerusalem before going to the cross. Uh, it's as if, you know, these different gospel writers writing from their different points of perspective, points of view, they're all focusing in, drawing our attention to this uh, ministry that's going to partake in Jerusalem. For, for us, in our study of Luke, he, Luke kind of joins back up with Matthew and Mark uh, around this time frame in regards to the overall uh, flow of his account. So uh, what that means is as we go through and study, we're going to be able to look at different portions of Scripture. We're going to be able to look at Matthew. We're going to be able to look at Mark. Sometimes we'll be able to look at John and, and get a fuller just idea of what's going on. Uh, sometimes we get extra information that Luke doesn't give us. We get it from Matthew. Sometimes we get it from Mark. And, and it's just cool. It allows us to get just a deeper understanding of all that God uh, was doing and is doing in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, today we're going to cover an account that I'm sure most of you have read before, or at the very least you've heard of. And while this account may be familiar to some or most of you, I hope that we can come this morning with you know, open ears and uh, an open heart, just ready to receive all that the Lord desires for us. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 18. Our text this morning is going to be Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. And the title of our message is going to be Inheriting Eternal Life. Okay, Inheriting Eternal Life. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles under uh, the seats situated around you. We do think it's important that you're able to follow along. Uh, once you've opened up to Luke chapter 18, would you please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read through our text in its entirety, and then we'll pray uh, asking uh, God just to lead us and guide us through his word. So follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke writes the following in chapter 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Well, who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your scriptures, to uh, read an account that maybe is somewhat familiar to us, Lord. We've read this account before. We've heard of this account. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, give us fresh insight, give us a fresh uh, set of ears and eyes just to see and to hear all that you would have for us. Lord, I know uh, that you desire to speak to us this morning, Lord, that you desire to uh, minister to us. And so, Lord, uh, maybe it's just a reminder of truths we have already known, uh, or maybe it's something uh, new you want to impart to us. I pray whatever it is that you would minister to us uh, today through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in uh, verse 18, our opening verse to our text, we're introduced to a certain ruler that came to Jesus asking him a question about inheriting eternal life. Eternal life, of course, is speaking about entering into the kingdom of God. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, we, we understand that this is connected to salvation. What this man was asking is how he could be saved. How could he enter the kingdom of God? How could he inherit eternal life? It's, it's all the same thing within this context. We're told here that this man was a ruler, uh, most likely a ruler of a local synagogue, but we're not told specifically. And from the other gospel accounts, we can actually gather more information about this uh, individual and his identity. Mark tells us that this man had great possessions. And in our text, uh, Luke expressly states that this man was very rich. Matthew tells us that he was young in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. And so this person before us in our text is none other than the infamous rich young ruler. Um, we often hear uh, this portion of scripture referred to as, you know, the account of the rich young ruler. Okay, we have to kind of get that actually from uh, multiple gospel accounts to get all those details to understand who this person is. This is a person that seems to have everything going for him. At least from the world's perspective, he's got so much going in his favor. He was a young man, okay, full of life and, and vigor and all sorts of future potential. He no doubt was well respected by others as he held a position of authority and influence as a, a ruler. He was a man who had power. He was notably wealthy. He had many possessions. He was rich with material goods. And though he was rich and powerful, we get the sense from the other gospel accounts that he did have a sense of humility about him as well. For it's in Mark's gospel, when we read it, 
uh, it describes his approach to Jesus as him running to Jesus and kneeling before him. Uh, this idea of just humility, right? And so we see that he was a, a seemingly, as we're going to get through here, he seems to be an upstanding young man. He did his best to follow all the commandments of God, a, a very religious person, one we would say, uh, you know, uh, was, was godly. These are things that I believe many seek after and desire for themselves. They want to have their youthfulness back. They want to have maybe fame and fortune, power and respect, and enough humility to keep themselves from going to extremes. Again, it would seem that this man, he had it all, and yet he still was lacking. This man was aware of his lack. He was aware that he needed something else. And that's why he came running to Jesus in the first place. This man had fame. He had fortune. He had manners. He had power. He had so much going for him. But these things still left him with a sense of lack. They still left him wanting for more. He had tasted of all of these things the world seeks after and found himself still wanting, unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And so he comes to Jesus seeking answers, seeking hope, wanting to find something that would give him the fulfillment and the assurance that he was looking for. You see, man has a need that can only be met by God. This man understood his emptiness. He had it all according to the world's standards, but he was still searching for more. And this brings us to our first point in our lesson this morning. And it's a simple one, okay? This rich young ruler lets us know that life without Christ is unfulfilling and unsatisfying. Okay, if you do not have the Lord in your life, okay, it doesn't matter what you put in there, okay, you will ultimately find that it does not satisfy. Okay? This rich young ruler came to Jesus asking, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And his question, you guys, you need to understand his question is flawed. He, he's very close, even in his own question. There's a hint to the answer. He asked about inheriting eternal life. Okay, let me ask you something. What do you do to inherit something? Nothing, right? You don't do anything. <laughs> you don't have to do anything. You have to be something, right? You, you have to be in error in order to inherit something. It isn't something you do, it's something you are. He was so close. The answer that he was seeking after involved being something, not doing something. It was being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the major problem the rich young ruler had was that the, he thought that the answer was based upon something he could do. He thought eternal life was something that can be earned, something that could be merited through certain works. The answer is not based upon anything that you can do because the work has already been done. The work of the cross is complete. When Jesus hung upon the cross and died for us, before he breathed his last, he uttered the word, which means it is finished. What was finished, you may ask? Well, his work. His work upon the cross was finished. He had done everything that was required to fulfill the law. He took the sin of all humanity upon himself. The outpouring of God's wrath was upon him. He took it all. He completed the mission God had given him in life. 
He was taken off of the cross. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he overcame sin and death and rose from the grave, proving that the work he had completed was indeed accepted by the Father. You know, it's been said that the cross was Jesus paying for the sins of all humanity and the resurrection was like the receipt God gave him, showing the debt was accepted and paid in full. Many people today fall into the same trap as the rich young ruler. They think that salvation, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God is based upon something they do. Many have the misconception that all of their works will be added up, you know, the good versus the bad. And as long as there's more good than there is bad, that they'll make it into heaven, that there's these, you know, cosmic scales. And as long as we have enough good over here, that'll get us in. That's not how it's done. Some feel that they can earn their way into heaven by doing good works. That if they pray enough, or they go to church enough, or if they give enough, or if they read the Bible enough, or if they evangelize enough, or if they serve enough, they'll somehow merit entrance into heaven. Again, that is not how it is done. Those are all great things, wonderful things. We should be doing those things, but that's not how you enter into the kingdom. The work has already been done. Jesus Christ did all that was necessary when he died upon the cross and he rose from the dead. When we come with our religious works, thinking that they will grant us admission into heaven, we're basically saying we don't need Jesus' work upon the cross or that Jesus' work upon the cross was not enough, that it was insufficient, that somehow it is lacking and it's our good works that make up the difference. That's not how it's done. Jesus is going to try and point out to this rich young ruler the error in his thinking in his response to him. So let's read it in verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. The first thing Jesus did was try to address the matter of this ruler's understanding of what, or rather who, is good. As the rich young ruler came to Jesus with his question, he addressed Jesus as good teacher. Culturally, this was not something that was acceptable. All Jews knew that there was only one that was good, and that was the Lord. Psalm 86, 5 declares, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 106, verse 1 exhorts us to praise the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. By making this statement, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus was not denying His own goodness, but He was making a veiled claim to His deity. This man had a faulty perception of good as something that could be measured by human experience and achievement. The truth of the matter is that the scriptures attest to the fact that none of us are good. Okay? I know a great number of you, okay, and you're wonderful people, okay, and, and all, but none of us are good. 
Romans states this, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And I think that's something Jesus was trying to point out to this rich young ruler. You know, no one is good. Okay? The rich young ruler, he could not be good enough. The rich young ruler needed to see himself in the context of God's perfect character. No one is good but God alone. The measuring rod for entrance into heaven is the goodness, the perfection of God. It didn't matter what he did, he would never measure up. He would never be good enough. Jesus tried to lead this man to this understanding by taking him to the law. Jesus highlighted five commandments, which came straight from the Ten Commandments. Okay, Each of these commandments were commandments that dealt with how people treat one another. They deal with our, our horizontal relationship, if you will, uh, person to person. The last six commandments of the Ten Commandments are of this sort. Okay, uh, Commandments... Uh, four, five, no, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Excuse me, are all commandments that deal with how we interact uh, person to person. Commandments one through four are about how we interact with the Lord. The last six are of this sort. Okay, the only one not mentioned here by Jesus is the final commandment, which is against covetousness. Which I think Jesus left that one off probably purposefully because he was working on this man's heart and wanted to reveal to him his need. All of these commandments, they deal with how we interact with people. Okay? Now, it's very important that you understand what Jesus is doing here. Okay? Jesus is not, okay, I repeat, he's not trying to suggest that this man can make it into heaven based upon following the law. Okay? Galatians is quite clear. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the, fle- of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Okay? A few verses later, Paul writes, If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If we could somehow secure our entrance into the kingdom of God through our works, through following the law, then Jesus Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. Okay? His work upon the cross was a waste if, in fact, we could enter into eternal life through the law. And so we know that Jesus isn't trying to tell this rich young ruler that following the law is the answer. And so why does Jesus point him to the law? Why does Jesus take him to the law and say, well, you know the commandments? It's because the law serves a very important purpose. Again, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law shows us the perfect standard demanded by God. When we go to the law, it shows us how far we fall short of it. When we realize the standard is perfection, we realize we can't make it on our own and we need someone to help us. That was the job, that was the purpose of the law. It was to point us to our need of Jesus Christ. 
to point us to the only hope that we have in fulfilling the law. We cannot fulfill it. It is impossible for us to do. And so we need the help of someone who was able to do it. And that is Jesus Christ. He came. He fulfilled the law. Okay, Jesus attested this in his sermon on the mount, stating, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus pointed this man to the law in hopes that he would see his need for Jesus, that he would see his own insufficiencies and realize his own need for Christ. But that's not the conclusion this young man came to. Let's read verse 21. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. The rich young ruler answered Jesus saying how he had done all these things, all of these things, excuse me, since he was a youth. Now, listen, you guys, I do believe the rich young ruler was being sincere, excuse me, sincere in his response. I don't think he's trying to claim that he was perfect, but that he was blameless concerning the law. You know, Paul spoke about his former conduct as Saul uh, and how concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he describes himself as that. That word blameless, it doesn't mean perfect. Paul wasn't professing to be perfect or without sin. What he was stating was that he had performed all the necessary rites, rituals, and sacrifices that were required for the sin that he had committed. He was in a good standing uh, with the Lord and in sight of the law. In that sense, he was blameless when it came to the righteousness of the law. And I think the rich young ruler is professing something similar, that he wasn't perfect, but that he had done all that was required. Anytime that he did break any of these commandments, he was in the right standing with God. Now, Jesus had taken this ruler to the law in order to point him, point out his own insufficiencies to show him his need for Jesus. But this rich young ruler missed the point. He looked at the law and he thought his efforts were sufficient, that he had done what was needed. Instead of looking to Jesus for help, this ruler thought, wow, he didn't need any help. He thought he had done all that was necessary. So Jesus, looking at him, and loving him, had to bring about the realization of his need by taking him back to the first part of the Ten Commandments. See, the last six commandments deal with our human-to-human relationships and interactions, but the first four commandments deal with our vertical relationship with God. And the very first commandment, okay, is really where the rubber meets the road with this rich young ruler. Jesus said, you still lack one thing, Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The one thing this man lacked was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus tells him to come and follow him. That's the emphasis of this message, right? The emphasis is you need to follow me. Okay, that's how you're going to get into the, the kingdom. The part about selling his goods and giving them to the poor was not the one thing that he lacked. They were the things that stood in the way of the one thing that he lacked. 
This man needed Jesus, but there was something standing in the way of Jesus, something that was placed above Jesus in priority. The very first commandment and Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And this is where this man had fallen short. This man had put riches and possessions before the Lord. And Jesus, knowing this, told him what was necessary. He needed to get rid of them so Jesus could take his rightful place as number one in this man's life. Jesus' exhortation to the rich young ruler to sell everything he owned and give it to the poor is not a universal commandment for us all. It was specific to this man's case. For this man, his riches and possessions were most important to him. They took the place of Jesus as top priority in his life, and so they had to go. Jesus expects the same from us as well. Maybe for you it isn't riches, okay? Maybe it's something else that you've allowed to take the number one priority in your life. Maybe it's your job, your career, okay? Maybe it's a relationship, perhaps some ambition or goal that you have. Anything that is more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ is something that needs to go. Jesus needs to be our biggest priority, our top priority. He is our greatest need and he must take his rightful place in our lives if we are to enter into the kingdom of God, if we're to inherit eternal life. If there is anything in your life that's hindering you from coming to Jesus and following him completely, church family, I must insist, it needs to go. Okay, it needs to go. Maybe it doesn't need to be completely, you know, removed, but it definitely needs to be moved down the priority list and put in its proper perspective, put in its proper order. We're told that the rich young ruler became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. The other gospel accounts describe him actually departing and going away from Jesus, filled with sorrow. He was so close. Right before him was the answer. But he turned his back on Jesus and he went the other way. He was unwilling to let go of his riches to follow after Jesus. You know, it's been said that money is a marvelous servant, but a terrible master. Money can be used for God's glory. It can be used to greatly impact the kingdom of God, but it also can be used for greed and selfishness and can be used against the kingdom of God. You see, money in and of itself is is amoral. Okay? Money is neither good nor evil, right? It's what you do with money that you have that makes a difference. That's what makes it good or evil, good or bad. The scriptures state that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Scripture is often most quoted. People think it's, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible teaches, okay? Money is... Neither good nor bad. It's what you do with that money. But in this particular case, with the rich young ruler, this was most certainly the case for him, that it had strayed him from the faith. He was pierced with many sorrows as he turned his back to Jesus and departed in the opposite direction. Let's continue. Jesus is going to use the rich young ruler and his situation as a teaching moment for the disciples. Let's read verses 24 through 26. It says, and when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when those who heard it, and those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? When Jesus saw the rich young ruler depart in sorrow, he turned to his disciples and addressed them, speaking about how difficult it was for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And you know, another side point I just want to throw out here. You know, I'm always very intrigued by Jesus' response here, especially in light of what we just read a few chapters ago, Luke chapter 15. Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep, right? And he pursues that one, and everybody rejoices when that one's found, right? But here, the rich young ruler turns away from the Lord in sorrow. He departs, and, and Jesus lets him depart. He doesn't say, oh, wait, 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 you know, let's, let's talk about this. Okay, maybe, maybe you don't have to sell everything. Maybe just half of your stuff or, you know, he tries to lighten it or make it easier. He doesn't. He goes, all right, and he turns his attention to the disciples. He says, okay, I gotta, let me teach you something here. I'm always amazed by that, blown away by that. There was a, a line drawn in the sand and the guy went the other way and Jesus says, okay. Yeah. Looking at this and this idea of how it would be difficult for those who have riches to enter the kingdom, it, it, this would be a huge shock okay, to the disciples. In fact, in both Matthew and Mark's gospel, we're told that the disciples were greatly astonished at this saying of Jesus's. We need to realize and understand that during that day, the people associated riches with God's blessings. If you were rich, you had a lot of possessions, it was seen as divine blessing upon your life. That you had somehow earned these riches by being such a godly and pious individual. And the opposite was also widely accepted. If you were poor, it was seen as a, a cursing upon yourself. That you must have done something to deserve that kind of life. You must have been a really bad person. And so God was punishing you by withholding his blessings from you. Okay? Now that certainly was not true. Okay? That is not true. But that is what was widely believed and accepted at that time. Okay, riches are not a sign of godliness, nor is poverty a sign of sin or wickedness. Okay, but that's how people often thought. And that's why the disciples were so astonished when Jesus said it would be hard for people who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the main reason why it's so difficult for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God is because they far too often will trust in and rely upon their riches rather than trusting in and relying upon Jesus Christ. And if you are trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ to get into heaven, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. In verse 25, Jesus spoke about a camel and it being easier for it to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've heard this portion of Scripture taught before, you may have heard someone uh, tell you uh, different interpretations or different ideas about what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Some have tried to explain that Jesus was talking about a small entrance, a very small uh, gate that would uh, lead into the city, when he spoke about the eye of the needle, that there was this uh, small gate on the side of the wall 
that you know once the city walls had been closed after dark that they would have this small little gate off to the side that people could come in and out of and it was referred to this small little gate was called the eye of the needle okay um and Basically, what would happen is if a person came to the city at night, they could go to this small subgate, dismount from their camel, and, and they can make it into the city. And then they would unload the camel, and, and guys would be pulling and pushing and squeezing and shoving this ornery beast through this little subgate in the wall. And after much sweat and effort, and after stripping your camel down from all the goods that it was carrying, you could make it through and enter into the city. That sounds kind of cool, okay? but that's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? That is not what Jesus is talking about here because it's plain to see that Jesus is talking about something that is impossible, not something that can happen through a lot of sacrifice and stripping down and pushing and shoving and tons of effort. I think Jesus was being quite literal when he spoke about a camel, one of the largest animals in that area, if not the largest, one of, and it trying to pass through the eye of a common sewing needle, the smallest of most any openings. The contrast is obvious. He's talking about taking some, he's talking about something that's impossible, taking the largest animal around and it passing through the smallest opening around. Well, that's an impossibility, just as it is an impossibility for man to enter the kingdom of God when he's trusting in his riches to get him there. The disciples understood this reality, as you can see from their reaction in verse 26. They said, who then can be saved? Right? If it's impossible for rich people to get in, then what hope is there for anyone else? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 27. Let's read. He said, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. It is impossible for man to save himself. A rich man cannot do it. And a poor man cannot do it either. A religious man can't do it. A selfless man can't do it. A peaceful man can't do it. No one can do it. It is an impossibility for man to save himself. There is no way it can happen because salvation with man is impossible but not so with God. For the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. You see, as bad as we are, as big of sinners that we are, no matter how bad we've blown it, it is possible that God can save us. We are not beyond the reach of God, His amazing grace and His love. God excels where man falls short. God is able to take the darkest of situations and shine his incredible light upon them. He's able to take our biggest failures and mistakes and mold us and mend us into a trophy of his grace. Too many people give up and think that there's no hope. Okay? They think that they are beyond fixing or that they are a lost cause, but God doesn't think that. Men will give up on one another. There will come times where we write certain people off and think that they are too far gone, that they'll never come to Christ, that they'll never make it into the kingdom of God, that they are a lost cause, but not in God's sight. God is able to do the impossible. He's able to take sinful man and restore him and make him whole again. He's able to remove their sin and grant them access into the kingdom of God. Praise God for his many trophies of grace. That's what you and I are. Church family, we are all simply 
trophies of God's amazing grace. It's not about us. It's about what he's done for us and the grace that's been poured out upon us. Let's quickly take a look at this last few verses here. Verse 28 says, Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. <laughs> Peter. I, I love Peter. We haven't heard from Peter in a while. Okay, He's, he's good. <laughs> he's good comic relief sometimes. Um, there he goes, opening his mouth again, getting himself into trouble. Uh, Luke doesn't record for us everything that Peter said, but Matthew does. And when we look at what Matthew has to say, we see the intent of Peter's heart here. In Matthew's gospel, Peter is quoted as saying, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? <laughs> you know, Peter was contrasting himself and the other disciples with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was not willing to sell off his belongings and possessions to come follow Christ, but the disciples had done that, right? They left their nets. They left their, their fishing businesses, their family business. They left all those things. And he said, hey, he didn't, but, but we did. You know, like, what do, we, what do we get? You know, like, what are we going to get out of this, right? There's this kind of sense. He wanted to know what they were going to get for their actions. He wanted to know, Uh, what they had earned, uh, because they did leave all, right? Well, this is obviously not the right kind of heart to have. We don't do for Christ in order to get from Christ. Our motivation for our service and our surrender to Christ should not be based upon what we can get out of it. Peter's heart was in the wrong place. He shouldn't be concerned with that sort of stuff. The fact that Christ loved us and died for us, And it made a way for us to enter the kingdom of God is more than enough to warrant a lifetime of surrender and service to Jesus Christ. Our motivation for our service unto Jesus ought to be based upon the love that we have for the Lord. And we love Him because He first loved us. We serve Him because He loved us and He made a way for us to spend eternity with Him in heaven. We shouldn't need anything else. Yet, I feel we oftentimes fall into the trap of this kind of thinking that Peter has. We treat our Christian walk as some sort of business endeavor where we put in the initial work and then we hope to reap a a bunch of benefits. Well, Jesus, you know, I've volunteered in the local church and I've paid my tithe somewhat regularly and I I haven't missed a Sunday service in over two months. What are you going to do for me now? You know, like... What's in it? You know, what are we going to get? Right? You, we have maybe an expectation that if we do these things, that you know, we're going to get something out of it. You know, it's not the right kind of heart to have. Right? Those who give to the Lord with the sole purpose of trying to get from the Lord will find themselves greatly disappointed. Listen, God doesn't owe us anything. It is us who owe Him everything. Okay, take a look at these final verses with me. Jesus responds to Peter. And he said to them, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. In these verses, Jesus promises two things to those that place him as number one in their life, those that are willing to 
remove anything that stands in the way of following after Jesus. Number one, Jesus promises that those that sacrifice for him and for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, not for their own selfish gain, right? That they will receive many times more in this present time. When we place Jesus as number one in our life, it will cause us to have to place our earthly relationships below our relationship with Jesus. He becomes the most important in our life, more important than our houses, our families, and our lands. But the beauty of serving the Lord is that He gives back to us far more than what we ever give up for Him. There may be relationships that need to be severed. There may be relationships that need to be moved down the priority list, but God is always faithful to provide way more than what we ever give up. When we place God first in our life and we are welcomed into the family of God, now we have countless brothers and sisters in Christ. We have elder saints who act like moms and dads to us. We have younger saints whom we can pour into and help point them to Jesus. And I don't want to speak for you, but I know that for myself and my own life, I've seen this over and over again. I am so blessed to know people all around the world that are like family to me. I know that just about anywhere in the U.S. I have a place to stay, a family to visit with. Even across the globe and other parts of the world, in foreign countries, I have friends and family in Christ who love me and support me, would take care of me if I ever came by and dropped by because I'm part of the body of Christ. And so we have that. We may give up certain relationships, but God always provides more. But even more important than the blessings of this present time, Jesus promises that those who make Jesus number one in their life will inherit eternal life in the age to come. And this is what is most important. That, or this is what it is all about, inheriting eternal life. Not earning eternal life, okay? Not Uh, meriting eternal life, not striving for or working for eternal life, but inheriting it as an heir. And this speaks of our relationship with Jesus Christ. An inheritance is a gift that's passed on to an heir. When we answer the call to follow Christ, we become part of the family of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 states, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. For those that answer the call to forsake all, they are believers. They are part of God's family, and as such, they will inherit eternal life with Jesus Christ. Life here on earth is but a vapor in comparison to the eternal. Let's make sure that we are living for the eternal and not the temporary. You see, anything that we give up for the Lord will pale in comparison to what we gain in exchange. I'm reminded of the words of the famous missionary, Jim Elliott, who wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'll say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. May our love for the Lord lead us in surrendering all to Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the account of the rich young ruler, what we can glean from it. Lord, just understanding um, our need for You, Lord, how we fall short, and yet 
Lord, through your grace, we could be granted the righteousness that's needed to enter into heaven because of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that reminder uh, this morning. I pray, Lord, that if there is anybody here that has yet to surrender their heart and their life to you, Lord, that today would be the day that they do so. Lord, that maybe if there's someone here that just relates to the rich young ruler, I pray that you would minister to their heart in a powerful way. Lord, we give you this time and give you our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys, uh, you know, the rich young ruler is a great portion of Scripture, one you're probably familiar with. Okay? We might have said, oh, I've heard this one before. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I pray that you would use this as an opportunity to get right with the Lord, to surrender your life with the Lord. But as I look out, I see a lot of familiar faces. I see people who know the Lord, who were walking with the Lord. I think there's some great material here for us to understand as well. You know, there's a great example Jesus gives in his ministry to the rich young ruler in witnessing to someone. He first distinguishes the difference between what's good and what's bad, how we're not good, right? And he gets that across, that point across. You're not good, right? We're all sinners, right? When we minister and evangelize, we witness with other people. That's a, a great starting point. We say, look, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Take them to the Ten Commandments. Show them where they fall short. Not to, you know, blast them, but to say, hey, look, you understand that you have a need. <laughs> Do you, you have to understand the bad news before the good news really makes sense. And so you have to show them, hey, you've fallen short in this area. Okay? And we all fall short. But that's what Jesus Christ came, and, and he came and he fulfilled the law for us so that we don't have to. And so then we're able to share the good news of the gospel. And so it's a great little template here, just how we can witness to the others around us. And maybe you have people in your life that need to hear the gospel message, that need to be touched with the gospel message. I pray that you would be bold enough to share with them, that you would use this portion of the scripture really as an example, as a template of how we can minister to people, letting them know their insufficiency, letting them know their need for Jesus Christ, and sharing the wonderful news of what Christ has done for us. So Take this to heart. Let it minister to your uh, hearts and souls in the weeks and days to come.